Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, today we're diving into the seventh commandment in our series, Thou Shall Be Free. We're trying to take a close look at the intention and the heart of God giving us the Ten Commandments. Now, before we dive in, a little bit of a disclaimer here. Uh, If you're watching this or listening to this with kids around, this is going to be some mature content. We're going to be talking about some things that you may not want talked about, uh, depending on your kids' ages. So uh, know that we're going to be diving into our just the idea not only of adultery, but what Jesus has in mind and his vision in terms of purity and our sexual formation. And so just know that that's going to be coming. Uh, If you have a Bible and you turn to Exodus chapter 20, you're going to find these 10 commandments. The first four deal with our relationship to the Lord and how we honor him. And the last six deal with our relationship with one another. And the reason why this is so important is he is instructing the Israelites on how to be a society, how to be a people in the promised land, in their relationship with the Lord. And one of the commandments that he gives, the seventh one, which is found in verse 14, says, do not commit adultery. Now, like the previous commandments, it seems pretty straightforward. And with that straightforward nature, oftentimes we can dismiss it with a level of simplicity without looking at the heart of the motivation behind the command. But my hope is over the next few minutes is that we would unpack how Jesus intended for us to lean into this seventh commandment. What we find is that this is more than just a commandment reserved for those who are married, who enter into infidelity. This is an issue of the heart that lies within every single human being. We actually have to unpack and we have to recognize that this is a heart issue that lies within every single human that the Lord wants to bring transformation. So three things we're going to look at today. Number one, we desperately need a resensitization in our culture, meaning we've lost a level of sensitivity to this subject because of the unique climate we're in. Secondly, because of the unique climate we're in, we need a re-strategization. We cannot rely on old strategies in order for us to live into purity and to live into faithfulness. And lastly, and most importantly, in order for us to honor the seventh commandment, we need re-sacredization, meaning we need a new vision of the sacred, a new vision of God, in order for us to live into the holy intent around our sexual formation. Let's dive into this first idea of a resensitization. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because since the 1960s and 70s and the sexual revolution that happened here in the United States, our culture has rapidly moved towards this progressive postmodern view in terms of our sexuality that has discipled every single one of us, both in and outside of the church. And because of the internet and the smartphone and now the privatization of technology that you can have in any room, uh, at any device, at really younger and younger ages, we are being exposed to more and more explicit material and that effect is changing us. And I mean this in a biological way. It is changing the neurological pathways in our brain. It is changing us at a molecular level. It is changing us at a soul level. 
And so what I want to do is I want to just spend a few moments here talking about the effect of our overly sexualized culture has had on our hearts. Because regardless if you're a Christian or not, a follower of Jesus or not, it's important for us to take a step back and to say, what are the effects that have taken place over the last 50 years, specifically over the last 10 to 15, with things like social media, with things like internet? What has happened? C.S. Lewis said that we grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. But C.S. Lewis wrote this in the 1950s. How much more so now? Ted Scheimer, who's a um, journalist, recently came out with an article about a year ago called How Porn is Rewiring the Brains of a Generation. And before we can talk about the influence of what does it mean to not commit adultery, we have to recognize what is taking place um, within our culture in terms of our vision and our understanding of sexuality. So let me just share you some of the research that Scheimer came across. Some of just the, the points of data. Number one, over the last decade, the percentage of American men between the ages of 18 and 30 who reported not having sex in the preceding year went from 10% to 28%. Meaning that over a, a quarter of, a, of the culture of males, and this is um, surveying people uh, all across it, when, at the height of the sexuality is dropping drastically from 10 to 28%. Next is that before internet porn, only 5% of men under 40 had erectile dysfunction. Today, 33% of men under 40 report some degree of ED. Surprisingly, this is an issue we are seeing more increasingly among teenagers. In 2016, a study of Canadian adolescents showed that 45.3% admitted to problems with erectile dysfunction. Married couples who watch porn are 318% more likely to have an affair than the porn-free couples. One national survey of over 15,000 adults asked respondents when they first had sex in their current or most recent relationship. 32% of men under 40 reported they had sex with their current partner before the relationship began. And in a survey of 1,300 Christian college ministry leaders, 51% of the females from that group reported watching porn at least occasionally. 70% of them either watched porn or had a sexual hookup in the last 12 months. The number of men was much higher. These are the future pastors, ministry leaders, wives, mothers, and husbands and fathers of our day. This is a drastically large issue in our culture, but one that is not often talked about. But culture outside of the church is starting to raise a flag and say, there's something desperately wrong. The Me Too movement, which was largely led by people saying enough is enough, took drastic steam throughout our nation because of how many people, like the name suggested, also were experiencing the fallout of sexual brokenness that was taking place. Recently, there was a, a website called Ashley Madison that was designed to help a married couple have affairs until that website was literally hacked into and said, if you do not shut this down, we are going to broadcast everyone's information that's been on it. And because they did not shut it down, they delivered on their promise. And thousands of prominent figures from politics to 
um, to religious and faith leaders or found out that those people were living secret lives. There is this, there is this sense that there is this growing groundswell of sexual brokenness and you begin to start wondering if the seventh commandment was given because of the grace and the goodness of God wanting us to steer clear from it. Dr. Mark Reginus in his, um, in his research says that the quality of porn and masturbation may well have reached a level of significant enough to satisfy many men such that the pursuit of real sex with real women seem no longer a benefit worth the costs of wooing. They may not declare virtual sex great sex, but they may conclude that it is good enough. Now, there may be some who says, listen, it's not a big deal. This is a private thing, and sometimes the church takes this too seriously. But what we're finding is that it's not the church that is growing in its seriousness, although it should. It's actually the secular culture that is starting to blow the whistle and say, this is, this is damaging us. And one of the most damaging things is if you follow the trends of what pornography has done to our nation, is how it has grown in, in viewership into more and more violent things for people to receive the same level of stimulation. Chris Hedges, who was doing research around the violence that is continuing to be um, brought into pornography, writes this, I think that the reason porn is so difficult for so many people to discuss is not that it's about sex. Our culture is saturated in sex. The reason it's difficult is that porn exposes something very uncomfortable about us. We accept a culture flooded with images of women who are sexual commodities. Increasingly, women in pornography are not people having sex, but bodies upon which sexual activities are increasing, with increasing cruelty are being played out. And many men, maybe a majority of men, like it. It's interesting if you look at the research around the neurological development of how people who at one point were pursuing sexual things start to translate it to violence. The reason why this is so dangerous is because what scientists call what fires together, wires together. And you begin to start having these two things attached that was supposed to bring dopamine and arousal now has to do with the last commandment, which is do not murder. Billie Eilish, the um, Grammy award-winning artist, recently in an interview was quoted saying, I think porn is a disgrace. I used to watch a lot of porn, to be honest. I started watching porn when I was like 11. It helped me feel as I were cool and one of the guys. I think it really destroyed my, my brain and I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn. She added saying that she suffered nightmares because some of the content she watched was so violent and abusive. This is very much the current state of our sexual formation. Now, before we demonize or villainize our current state, we also have to recognize that the ancient world also had its own broken worldview around sexuality. Largely, when this was written, there was high levels, not of just of a patriarchal society, but of mis misogyny, that they interpreted the seventh commandment as a commandment around property. There was no understanding that this would go over to people who were not married or to prostitutes. It was only if, if someone married, you do not cross that boundary line. And some rabbis 
in the time of Jesus had writings giving permission for men to divorce their wives, which, by the way, women were not allowed to divorce their husbands according to their tradition, not according to Scripture. And their interpretation of that, one rabbi wrote that even if the wife burns the bread or burns the toast, it is lawful for the man to issue a certificate of divorce. And so this, the, the ancient, um, really broken world, you read into the seventh commandment saying, this was only about not crossing boundary lines. So again, the, our current world is extremely broken because of the sexual climate. The ancient world was incredibly broken because of their primitive environment. And so what we desperately need is a new kingdom vision for sexuality. And the one who brought this about was Jesus. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he spends a significant time teaching what the kingdom of God is, he spends time breaking down his interpretation, which is the correct interpretation of the seventh commandment, because he is Yahweh who's come to save us. He is the lawgiver. He says, you've heard it that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, this is a radical new interpretation for anyone who would have been listening in that first century audience. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And everyone would have nodded their heads. Yes, they agree. we agree this is a good command. But he, he goes on to say, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, when Yahweh commands, you should not commit adultery, says Gerald Johnson, Yahweh does so for our good to protect and enhance our sexuality as though the manufacturer is saying, powerful gift, handle with care. So we're left with these competing visions for what does it mean to live into the seventh commandment. Jesus just said, this is a heart issue. This is not just some act that is only for a few people to watch out for. This is something we all need to pay attention to. Now, just to kind of help simplify this, I want to point out um, just some framework that John Tyson put together around how we understand this. The first one is our secular understanding around sexuality. In our secular understanding, we believe that sexuality is about identity. It's about who I am. It's about rights and no one's ability to have rights over me, whether it's a political or religious system. Um, I have the right to do that. It's about an ideology. Ultimately, the ideology points to the main purpose of pleasure. And that the only thing stopping that pleasure is a thin line called consent. And that consent is defined by sociology. But then many of us who maybe grew up within the church had a different framework around sexuality. And that wasn't a secular framework. It was a shame-based framework. Shame-based frameworks talks about sexuality through the lens of legalism. And it upholds its legalism by celebrating moralism. And it defines its moralism by saying that we have literalism. And in that literalism that leans into fear and secrecy. And ultimately, unfortunately, what we've seen again and again in the news is hypocrisy. Where religious and Christian leaders who preach a certain uh, framework of sexuality tend to not be live, living it in their private life. This is a shame base. And what we desperately need is a new framework, which is a sacred framework, where we understand sexuality in terms of formation. This is a powerful tool to form us into the image of Christ, that in the image of Christ, we see the fulfillment of what was intended to be. 
We get our instruction not from ideology or literalism. We get it from theology. We get it from scripture. Its driving force is not pleasure or fear. It is grace. And the goal of that is that there would be transformation. And when there's transformation, there's belonging. And so we desperately need a new vision. We need to recognize that the world we live in has tainted our understanding. That is far from what Jesus' intent was. Ronald Rollheiser writes, that sex cannot deliver the goods. It alleviates our loneliness too little, especially our moral loneliness. Sex that isn't sublime doesn't bring us a soulmate. What brings is a fix, a hit, a drug that helps us through a lonely night or lonely season, but that deep down we know cannot give us what we need. And sex cannot be sublime without first living a, a, living a real chastity. The person who sleeps with somebody, he or she already knows, has no real commitment to them and has never lived chast tension, will not have a sublime or profound experience. Short-circuiting chastity is like trying to write a masterpiece overnight. Good luck, but it isn't going to happen. Great love, like great art, takes great effort, sustained commitment, and lots of time. So, what do we do? What do we do when we have an honest look where we're realizing that more and more our, our neurological and biological framework is being changed because of the culture we're being immersed in. And on the opposite, and the best we've done is to try and create a fear-based or shame-based response to that. How do we do that? We need a new strategy. We need a re-strategization in order for us to respond. So let me just offer three ideas. If you're listening to this, maybe you're squirming a little bit in your seat or you're listening to this like, man, this, this kind of feels like a lot or heavy or this is feel legalistic. Let me just bring you to a few things that Jesus pointed out. And these are three thoughts. Number one, we need to cut it out. Secondly, we need to confess to one another. And thirdly, we need to consecrate our life. When I say cut it out, I don't mean just stop it. I think some of the worst advice we've ever given people who are struggling with sexual sin is just stop it, slap on the wrist and say, hey, that's enough. Without recognizing that Oftentimes we are caught in something that feels too strong a current for us to stop. And at the same time, many of us who have found this current too strong to swim in have given up altogether. And Jesus does not say just to give up because it's too strong. As a matter of fact, after he says that whoever has looked at a woman lustfully has committed adultery, he then says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than of your whole body going into hell. Now, Jesus is obviously speaking hyperbolically, meaning he's not, no serious scholar is going to say you need to cut off your literal hand or pluck out your eye. But I think what he could say is you need to deal, deal seriously and intentionally with the sexual sin in your life. What's the source that needs to be cut off? The Apostle Paul says this, flee sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. There's something happening to them. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, 
whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price to glorify God with your body. That opening line, flee, comes from the Greek word phiego, which means to flee, escape, elude, take flight, shrink, stand fearfully aloof, to make an escape. I find it really interesting that Paul doesn't say fight. He says literally run away. He doesn't say tempt it, get close to it, go to the edge of it, go close to the border. He says run as far as you can. Jesus says cut it off. There needs to be a deliberate series of actions that said I will not do this anymore. Dr. Lewis Smith says pressures are not excuses. They are only factors in people's lives that sometimes shove them towards adultery. They do not make people vulnerable. So a couple of things that maybe you've considered, maybe you've tried, but I would encourage you, maybe you need to retry. If Jesus cut off your hand, what's that version? What's that thing that you can cut off? Maybe it's a device or the settings on your device. Maybe it's sharing your passwords with your spouse or your roommate. If you have children, it's making sure that you're not arming them with a weapon they are not old enough to have. You're not giving them unlimited access to to Google or to Safari, to social media, um, exposing them not only to images they don't want to see, but people who are actually trying to take advantage of them as well. Maybe that looks like you installing an app on your phone called Covenant Eyes. And I've talked to so many guys like, yeah, you know what? It's great. It just takes things really slow. Wouldn't, isn't that a good trade-off of having a slow browser if that means you are avoiding something that could ultimately bring about death and destruction? We have open tables here, both for pure desire for men who are working through that, and also we have an open table of women who are dealing with the level of betrayal that that's caused. We have access to this is a serious problem in your life, a group called Integrity Counseling in Carlsbad that deals specifically with sexual addiction. They're Christian therapists. But let me make this very clear. All of those techniques, as great as they are, cannot be the effect of willpower. What I mean by that is willpower is not effective enough for you to bring transformation. There's this, there's this cycle, right? There's this grid you should see on the screen where it says, uh, we try harder, right? You hear a sermon like this, you're like, oh man, you're right, I shouldn't do that. So what we do is for the next one or two weeks, we're like, man, I'm going to cut it out, I'm going to try harder. And then after you try harder, you get fatigued. And after you get fatigued, then you quit. And after you quit, then you have shame. And after you have shame, you try harder and you start in that cycle again and it's this cycle of religious guilt isn't there a better way and the better way and the purpose of today is that hopefully we can provide for you a vision a new vision of what does it look like to live into the holiness around our sexuality god intended and when you have the vision then you institute practices of love practices habits this is not just about you learning information this is in this is installing into your life the patterns and rhythms that will bring transformation. And then when you experience transformation, which sometimes will take months or years to live out, you will experience joy. And that joy will lead into a more prominent and beautiful vision for you to be able to live that out. And so how does that, how does that work? How do you live out this new vision for sexual purity? I think one of the greatest tools, both ancient and modern, that theologians, fathers of the faith, and modern psychologists and scholars is the practice of confession. Confession is powerful, not because you're just telling on yourself, or not because you can keep each other accountable. Confession is powerful because it allows you to be human, it allows you to be known, it allows you ultimately to be healed. It's why James, in chapter 5 of his letter, 
Verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You see, can you, can you imagine if we lived in a community where we were able to talk about, hey, you know what, this, this is a part of my life and I don't want it to be. Can I be honest with you? Texting a friend, a brother, sharing with your spouse, like, hey, I, I, I have not been honest with you. Can I let you know something in my life? Because what that happens is it exposes a longing that we have been shortcutting, we've been leading a counterfeit. Well, ultimately, that was supposed to be leading us to God. And it's this community we're supposed to live that out. John Tyson says that sexual feelings and bodily desires are an important part of what it means to bear God's image. And we flourish as we bring them into harmony with our God-given identity. Our sexual longings are a homing instinct for the divine, pointing us to God, pointing us to the only intimate union that fully satisfies the one with God himself. Nobody has ever kept these ideals of marriage, sex, and family as they should. Christian communities are places of sin, failure, and struggle, as well as hope and grace. And so Christians are called to work to build accepting communities that offer support and compassion to all, regardless of backgrounds of circumstances. You see, confession can bring rescue. Oftentimes, as a pastor, as I'm sitting with men who are trying to get out of this cycle, is that uh, I'm like, please please tell someone when this is a level one or two, not when it's a level eight or nine or 10. Get in the practice of living in a community where you can be human, where you can just tell someone like, hey man, I've just, it's been a hard week. I feel tired. I feel exposed to the enemy. Would you pray for me? I'm going on a work trip. Would you cover me in prayer? I always think so highly of the people who are doing the proactive work rather than the reactive work of confession. Also, along with confession, it's also important to know that sometimes we're not just confessing the sin that we did. Some of the confession is the sin that was done to us. The reason why this is a hard topic to talk about is not only are there people struggling with this, there's people who are struggling because of the result of this. There's not a single person watching this whose life has not been impacted because of the sexual fallout within our culture. That has been hurt at a heart and a soul level, sometimes at a, at a deep, deep physical and mental level because of this. And confession is, needs to be that safe place where we begin to work through our healing. And, and by the way, I know we've spent some time talking about pornography, but this is not just visual stuff. This is, this is just as serious in terms of the emotional capacity we have to link with other people that are not our spouse. And if you're married, you need to think very strongly and consider where are the poles that you're having to connect with someone emotionally? Where are the people that you lean into because they make you feel like more of yourself or they give you a sense of respect or they give you that, that sense of butterflies and you're chasing that adrenaline, you're chasing that thing? Who are the people you spend extra time lingering at their desk? Who are the people that you find yourself deleting DMs or text messages because you don't want your spouse to see? Who are the people that you used to have a relationship with that you start going back to on social media to maybe rekindle something that might be there? And all the while you think it's harmless, but what you don't realize is those little emotional connections can be just as powerful and sometimes even more deadly than the things that we look at that are just visual as well. Dr. Paul Mickey out of Duke University says, in my counseling experience, an extramarital sex act is rarely the first expression of lust in a person's life. It is usually the last. There's so much going on prematurely 
that we need to be aware of that needs to live out in the light of confession. And one thing we've said a lot around this church is what lives in the dark dies in the light. Drag out your humanity and your brokenness into the light, not to be stoned and humiliated, but to be encouraged. And I remember I remember one conversation I was having, and just so just to help shepherd and coach you, if someone comes to you and they're saying, hey, I'm struggling with this, or I'm leaning into this relationship that I should not be having. I'm looking at something I should not be having. What they don't need is you patting them on the back and saying, it's okay, everyone struggles with this. It's not helpful. What they need is for you to pat them on the back, pull them in close and say, this is not going to be good for you or the person that you love. Drawing them in closer and saying, I love you too much to let this continue in your life. I'm going to call you to the person who God's called you to be, which is holy and righteous. And I'm going to give you grace. And at the very same time, I'm going to give you truth. And we all need those people. We don't need someone who just belittles our sin. We need someone who takes that sin seriously. Jesus took the seventh commandment seriously. And I'm so afraid as a pastor that we've gone to this place in our culture where because we've seen the statistics of how many people struggle, whether it's with pornography or emotional affairs, we've just dismissed it. I guess it's just a part of life. And I think to do that, we have rejected Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. We cannot give in to that. Now, our response cannot be legalistic willpower either. What we need is grace-powered, kindness-powered, change and transformation to say, Lord, I, I don't want to live like this. Give me a soft heart. Don't the calluses that grow on my fingers be the same thing grow on my heart. I want to keep a soft heart before you. And what that looks like is if we live into a life of confession, we'll live into a life of consecration. Consecration means you've set your life apart for the Lord. Your sexuality needs to be consecrated. It is the Lord's. It is not ours. That is the message we've all been told. Our sexuality is mine. No one has the right to tell me if it's right or wrong or who I get to think about, sleep with, talk to. And when Paul, when he says flee sexual immorality, he says all other sin the person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? Please hear this. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You understand, you shall not commit adultery. It's not the first commandment. It's the seventh. The first commandment is that you shall have no other gods before me. Did you realize that some, uh, oftentimes our sexual desires are actually pointing to a deeper desire in our heart that only God can fulfill? Friedrich Buechner one time was writing about a time that he had when he was in Jamaica where he found himself lusting after a woman. And he writes, he says, what I was really longing for was the beauty beyond the beauty. There was something else that my soul was actually looking for, that I was, sa- I was satisfied in a counterfeit. This is why G.K. Chesterton once wrote, everyone who knocks at the door of a brothel is looking for God. Our sexual dysfunction and desire actually is pointing us to is we want a beauty that no one can satisfy. We want a sense of intimacy that no one can satisfy. We want a sense of belonging that no one can satisfy except for God. And God's ordained place for this to happen between a man and a wife in the covenant of marriage, that is the only container safe enough to hold something this powerful. 
And so my, my hope and my prayer as a pastor as I've been preparing and praying and studying for this sermon is our last point here is we need a re-sacredization. We need to see God differently, not just sexuality or not just an individual or our sin. We need to see God differently. I think one of the most powerful scriptures in the entire Bible on what to do with sexual sin comes after David himself sinned sexually with Bathsheba, took another woman for his own who was already married, and then went and murdered her husband to try and cover it up. It was an absolute sexual catastrophe. It ruined life. It it put the kingdom in jeopardy. And as David is reflecting after he was found out, he writes these words. He says, be gracious to me, God according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Now now listen to verse four. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Man, I think this is the most revolutionary verse that for David, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against his other uh, wife, he sinned against the nation of Israel, and yet in this moment, his first point of contact was says, God, I sinned against you. You're the person I sinned against. You see that we will never deal adequately with our sin if we're always using other people in our culture to justify our righteousness or lack thereof. It is only when we see God high and lifted up. I think about the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees God high and lifted up. And what he says is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Pay attention to that. What was Isaiah's occupation? He was a prophet. The most profound, pure thing in his life was his lips. But when he saw God high and lifted up, the thing that was most notable, righteous in his life, even that was something that was unclean. He needed someone to come and purify it. And this is what I find is so profound, is that David continues his psalm by saying this, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. I am convinced that we cannot get the the best app, the best accountability group, the best open table, the right strategy if we do not first and foremost see God high and lifted up for who He is, that the fear of God would fill our hearts against, against you and you alone have I sinned. Why is this so important? Two reasons. Number one is because it will put right our level of righteousness and holiness that we are to be aiming for. But secondly, It's God who not only has the standard, it's God who has the grace. It's God who has the compassion. It's God who has the mercy. Culture will not be as merciful to you as the living God. No one will treat you with the compassion as the one who holds the standard. This is why I think it's so profound in Luke chapter 7. It tells a story of a female prostitute, a sex worker, who shows up to the house of a Pharisee. And she begins to start washing Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee, this holder, this person who holds up the religious law, looks at her and in his mind says, if Jesus really was a prophet, he would know the kind of woman who's washing his feet. And Jesus speaks to his thought and says, hey, let me tell you a story. 
And he starts telling him a story about the person who's been forgiven little and forgiven much. And he asks the Pharisee, who do you think loves more, the person who's forgiven much or little? He says, the person who's forgiven much. He says, you've judged correctly, he told him. And verse 44, he says, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. My friends, I beg you to come back to God. Do not belittle your sin. Come to the one who can rise up your level of righteousness and at the very same time treat you with compassion that the world would never treat you with. Let, like Romans says, his kindness lead you towards repentance. Come and say, I don't want to just mark a box of not breaking the seventh commandment. I want a new Heart, And this is the, the last thing I want to leave you with. This is David's prayer in Psalm 51, where he says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Two things, create a clean heart in me, O oh God. A steadfast spirit within me. And the last line, sustain me. By giving me a willing spirit. We need a new engine to lead us towards purity. We need something that gives us a new vision for Jesus' formation in terms of sexual ethic. We need something desperately new. Because if we don't have that spirit living in us a sustained way, we will continue to look for some other thing to satisfy. Philip Yancey says that sexual intimacy is a sacred pointer to something even greater, something truly out of this world. We make ourselves vulnerable. We, we risk. We give and receive in a simultaneous act. We feel a primordial delight entering into the other in communion. Quite literally, we make one flesh out of two different persons, experiencing for a brief time a unity like no other. The very word sex comes from the Latin verb that means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within us as a longing for union with the parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. But the Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. So if you identify with that woman who has been marked by her sin, would you come to the feet of Jesus today not to be scolded, banished, or belittled, but to be welcomed into forgiveness? Why? Because he or she that has been forgiven much loves much. How thankful that we have a God who looks at sex and says, in its right context, it is beautiful and good because it draws us to union and Christ-likeness, but outside of it, it results in pain. And there's not a person watching this that has not been felt the effect of that. 
And so if you're watching this before you lean into a sense like, man, I really blew it or I'm really struggling, can I encourage you, come back to God. Find his compassion and his grace, but do not take his kindness with contempt, but continue to say, I, I need to enter into a life marked with fullness and flourishing and wholeness and healing. Don't, don't do it alone. Share with someone. Draw into a place. If your heart has been divided, if you have found yourself longing for someone else or something else to give you pleasure, belonging, release, a sense of control, know that all of those things will leave you empty unless you finally come to God. And why is this so important? Because it is only God who not only can satisfy, it is only God who can set you free. So would we be the kind of community who continues to simultaneously hold ourselves to Jesus' righteous standard and at the very same time be a place where forgiveness and transformation can happen other, unlike any other place you can have it in the world? And through that, would we be transformed into the wholeness, to the image of Christ who gives us the perfect picture of selflessness? And would we lay down at his feet our own selfishness and welcome his healing? Would you pray with me? Lord, I think about David's prayer in Psalm 51. I just want to pray this over us today. Would you be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. The bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Lord, would you restore the joy of your salvation? And would you fill us with your spirit that we would have sustained levels of honor, holiness, and purity so that the ones we love and the society you called us to belong to be one of healing and flourishing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.